Okay. Um, chapter 3, verse 15, kind of where we left off, we're talking about the one church of all the seven churches that Jesus has no commendations for. All right? It's, it's, uh, it's stark. Because, you, you know, you want to think, well, is there, is there anything that Jesus can look at in a church and say, this I have for you, right? So the first time that he says, there's nothing I can say for you. So, um, you know that saying, we save the, the best for the last? In some ways, in the seven letters that go out, th- this actually addresses one of the most, one of the most um, damaging behaviors in the church today. And, uh, and I believe that it very much fits uh, the church uh, in our world today. Uh, the words are, are very simply, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of your mouth. And we talked about this last week, that, that probably the one thing that I, that I think um, just cripples the church today is, is apathy, is this sense that um, we're, we're, we're on a cruise ship rather than a battleship, right? That... Um, uh, church is about stuff for us versus the church is for the world. And uh, when, when that begins to happen, you, you end up uh, becoming just not useful to God. And so he, he's saying, I'll spit you out of my mouth, not so much as a way of saying, I reject you and, and you know, we'll just be done with you, but as a way of saying, I'll spew you out of my mouth, um, I'm, I'm going to shake you up. There, there, needs, there needs to be shaking up, okay? Now, part of what's going on uh, relative to the apathy in the church in Laodicea, I believe, has to do with this very, this very next word, all right? So look at verse 17. He says, for, for, you say, for you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, okay? What... what what causes apathy? What causes this sense of, eh? Well, part of what's going on in Laodicea, Laodicea was one of the more wealthy towns in, in Rome at this, in this period of time. And, uh, and part of its wealth came from its, uh, its export of wool. Part of its wealth came from its uh, export of pharmaceuticals. And what kind of strikes me about this is when I, when I look at America today, um, the typical American, if I were to ask them, are you rich, would say, no, not really, okay? I mean, if I, if, we had, if I drove around Grand Island for a day and just pretty much every person I met, I said, hey, excuse me, are you rich? What, what would they tell me? No, I live in Grand Island. Are you kidding me? All right. Now, question. Are there a lot of rich people in Grand Island? Absolutely. I mean, when you, when you look at the world and the economy of the world, there's, there's no way around that, okay? Um, I kind of got to watch this where I lived in, in North Dallas. Um, probably one of my favorite books of all time was a book written by a gay atheist who one day decided to, to kind of think about what wealth does in America, what effect it has upon Americans. And so he uh, took out a map and he started to do, doing a, a zip code study where you take the zip codes around the country and you're trying to determine, you know, wh- what, where are some of the wealthier 
uh, zip code areas in the country. He says, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to to one of those wealthy zip code areas. So he got on his map, and lo and behold, boop, Frisco, Texas, ends up being the place that he decides I'm going to go do my study. Okay, so he moves to Frisco, Texas. Frisco is, is right next door to where where we lived, um, and he he moves in with three different families, and he spends three different years kind of doing his his study. It's kind of a sociological study on the effect of wealth on Americans. And he writes, he writes this book um, ab- about his findings in a way that kind of just takes you through, the, through a narrative of, of life lived out through the lens of these, these three families. Now, what made it interesting to me is uh, one of those three families was, was actually a, a school family in the school that was part of our church. So it was, it was kind of interesting just personally to say, okay, let's take a look at this. Now, the title of the book is uh, Tinsel, Tinsel, uh, and he titles that for a reason. You, you know, you put tinsel on a Christmas tree to make it shine and sparkle, and, uh, and, and actually a lot of his, his study takes place around the, the Christmas period as an example of the wealth of America, right? And, uh, and so he tells a story that kind of illustrates what wealth can do to you, and it's a story about Santa Claus. Okay, um, I don't know how many of you still believe. I, I, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to mess things up. But um, I didn't really realize this. But yeah, uh, when it comes to to Santa Clauses for malls, right? Uh, do we have a Santa? We have a Santa here in, in Grand Island Mall. Kind of still we got one. Okay. When it comes to Santas for malls, I didn't realize this, but there's there's a society called. The, the Society for the Real Bearded Santas, okay? So this society, uh, to be a part of it, you, you, again, you have to hire yourself out. You are a Santa, and, uh, and you have to have a real beard. I mean, when the, when the kids pull it, ouch, it hurts, right? Uh, and what I, the other thing I didn't realize is that they rank the, the, the real bearded Santas. So your performance as a Santa actually gets qualified, and you get a ranking, so the mall in Frisco battles every year to, to obtain the number one ranked real bearded Santa in America. So, so what ends up happening is they, they spend about $50,000 a year, that's his salary, for this guy to be a real bearded Santa for several weeks during the Christmas season. And the reason they do that is they know that the mamas in the area spend a lot of time talking to each other and comparing notes about the Santas. Which Santa did you like better? Well, this Santa does this and this Santa does this. And so they, they look at it as an investment uh, in, into their, their shopping mall to bring in the number one rated real bearded Santa, which made me, as I'm reading this book, think, I, could I, you think I could grow a beard? I'm like, I don't know if, if I could do that. But as you read the book, those kinds of stories kind of put a spotlight on the way that Americans can just get so wrapped up in something as minuscule as what, what kind of performance the Santa does and lose complete sight of what it means to, to just live in a world where there's a lot of brokenness around you.
And, and this, is, this is part of what happens when you look at the effect of wealth on people, is it can take you to a place where you really, you really get, get into just feeling like, I, I don't really need anything. I don't, I don't have any need. And, uh, and so what's happening in this church is it's, it's a wealthy church. Um, the people in it have no fire. Uh, they don't see that wealth as this is just a resource that God is giving you to change the world around you. They don't see it that way. We worked for it. We earned it. It's, it's ours, right? And as a result, as you talk to the people in the church and you say to them, hey, how can I pray for you? It's not untypical in Laodicea. What are you going to hear? I'm good. I'm fine. All right? Um, and, and to be honest with you, part of my experience uh, in the church in the West has been a lot of that, that uh, I can go out on the streets and within a matter of minutes find myself praying with multiple people, all of whom are complete strangers, and it'll open up that fast. How can I pray for you? Oh, this is going on in my life. Would you pray for you? And, and at the same time, come back into a church and not, not surprisingly, really in some ways, how can I pray for you? I'm good. I'm fine. Things are good, right? And so part of what's going on here is kind of look at the prevailing word here. Um, see if you can, see if you pick it out. Verse 17 again. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Where is their focus? On themselves, right? Their focus is on themselves and not looking out there, not looking at how do I take, how do we take the resources, people, time, energy, dollars, and, and use them to, to impact the culture around us. And so Jesus is looking at him and saying, you're of no good to me anymore. You, you're focused on yourself. Uh, you feel like you have no needs. Uh, you don't need me. You don't need me. And uh, as a result, you're not useful to me. And now I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And that, that is his intention, is to shake up this church in Laodicea and to cause the church to, to, to come back to that place of dependency uh, upon him. Um, notice these words that Jesus speaks next to them. There's kind of a series here. He says, here's what you don't realize. You're not realizing that in reality... You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We're fine. We're good. No, so you're not good. You're, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Okay? So wretched, I mean, it's not a word that we use all that often. I don't get to hear it all that often if I said to you, you wretched witch, you know, I mean, that's kind of the word that comes to your mind. But it's actually... Uh, Taliparos is a word that, that actually means you, you are without mercy. You are without mercy. You are under the law, all right? Um, you're not living under grace. You're actually putting yourself by the way that you live under the law uh, because you don't have a need for Jesus. You don't, you don't need him. So now you're, you're going to be under the law. You are pitiful. And the way I always look at the word pitiful is just slice it in half. You're full of pits. You're full of pits. Okay? 
You look in the mirror and say to yourself, look how wonderful we are. Here's the reality is you've fallen into all kinds of pits and traps that you can't even see. You don't even recognize. And when I, Jesus, look at you, I see you stuck in all of these pits that you can't get out of, but you think you can. All right? You are poor. And the word is patukos, which means literally you're without strength. You have no strength. Okay? I mean, the strength of the church is, has nothing to do with, with our wealth or our abilities. It has everything in the world to do with what? Coming up underneath the Spirit of God, prostrate before Him, saying, God, we desire to be used of you to, to change this world and to bring people to know you, and we can't do it. We don't have the strength to do it. Now you're strong, right? When I say, look at what we can do. Look, look, at, look at the assets we have. I'm actually what? I'm what Jesus would say, Patukas, you're poor, you're without strength. Um, you say, I'm rich, you're actually the opposite of that. And then you're blind. And this is kind of a, a little bit of a play on the culture there because in Laodicea, one of the pharmaceuticals that, uh, that they were famous for was ointment for your, your eyes, right? And uh, so in a way, he's almost saying to Laodicea, you, you need some ointment, but the ointment that you need isn't, isn't for your physical eyes. The ointment that you need is, is ointment for your spiritual eyes. You're unable to see what's going on in your own life. And then finally he says, and this is, this is kind of the, the killer word, I call it, you are naked. That word takes you back all the way to the garden, Right? And uh, for the first time in history, you have these two people who sin and uh, who realize uh, in that moment we're uncovered. We're completely uncovered. Uh, this group of people, uh, they, they are uh, w- with sin against God, uh, but are blind to it. And yet what God is saying, when I look at you, you're, you're naked, meaning what? You're uncovered. You're not covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. So the so opposite of a commendation, these are some of the hardest words that Jesus speaks to any church. He's literally saying to them, your lukewarmness has put you into a position where you are under the law and you're not covered by the grace of God. Your, your, your poverty is a spiritual poverty. And so I must spit you out of, out of my mouth. Okay, so um, the counsel that that Jesus gives to the church here, to me, is almost stunning. Here's what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Okay? So think about this. Um, part of, part of the, the metaphor that the Bible uses relative to uh, what happens as we enter into eternity is Jesus will say, you're going to receive what a, a cr- the crown of, of life, a, a golden crown of life. And, and so when he talks about receiving gold that has been refined in, in fire, he's really pushing them to think about that, that um, key word here. What does it mean to be refined? To get gold, it has to go through fire. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness might not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. All right, so he, he paints this picture. 
of how do I, how do we address all of this? And the key focus is, is upon something spiritual that's getting ready to happen or that he's asking them to, to have happen. Go and anoint your eyes, okay? Um, not with this kind of ointment, but with the Spirit of God, so that you may see. Okay, what's he talking about? How do you get this refinement? Okay, well, verse number 19 tells you how. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Okay, so I'm going to put this kind of into my own words, that that um, um, when I look at this church, here's what Jesus is really saying to it. I need to refine you. I need to take you through fire. And so when Jesus speaks this word, he's saying, what I actually want you to be zealous for and to seek out is that refinement. How many of us, when we hear those words, those whom I love, I discipline and reprove, how many of us think about, it wouldn't it be awesome this week just to, just to get down on our knees and to pray to God, God, would you discipline me this week? God, would you reprove me this week? Does that seem like something fun to do? I remember my dad, you know, I don't, and I'm not advocating anything, or, but my dad back in our days, we would, uh, we would um, get spankings, right? And so my dad's favorite phrase when we get spanked, he'd say, he'd say, okay, lie down on the bed. We'd lie down on the bed. That in and of itself was bad because now you can't see him. You're like, oh, it's going to and he'd say, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Some of your parents said that, didn't they? I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, dad, then I'll trade with you. Hey, you're good. I never tried that because I knew what would happen to me. <laughs> I wouldn't be alive today, right? Reproof and discipline, all right, are something that we don't necessarily, we don't, we don't think of in our minds as good. We think of as, okay, I don't, I don't like it. I don't want to be disciplined. I don't want to be reproved by God. But actually, reproof and discipline are, are a product of what? Of God's love. Those whom I love, I discipline and I reprove. And one of the things that, that I like to say to, uh, to, the, to the church today is, I think, there's a, there, I think there's a place in the life of the church um, that comes out of Laodicea that, that actually invites a church to, uh, from time to time, I think even corporately, come before God and, and come down on our knees and admit that too often we are like Laodicea. We depend upon ourselves and we're poor. Too often we take our resources and we make them about what? us, rather than about those whom God has called us to serve. And, and I don't think it's wrong. In fact, I think it's actually healthy for the leadership of a church and, and even the body of the church from time to time to come before God in prayer. And one of those prayers that I think I would encourage a church to, to actually pray is, God, you love us. Are there places? Are there places where you would reprove us? Are there places where you would actually discipline us? and cause us in, in love to come back to you. Show us our weak spots, because the reality is we become blind to them. We simply become blind to them. And, and to be the church of Jesus Christ, and, and I hope you pick it up in this word zealous, be zealous, he says. The, the, the whole heart of the church of Jesus Christ is for what? Is to, is to, to, to know that this world is going to go by this fast, the whole of it. 
and that um, the only thing that matters in the end is not what kind of buildings did your church build or what kind of programs did it run, but the only thing that matters is are there people that are coming to know Jesus Christ through, through the work that you're doing? And be zealous for that. And if there's some reproof needed, if there's some discipline needed, don't shy away from that. Don't push that aside. But literally come before him and say, God, are there places where you would reprove us, where you would say to us, this right here is not, is not good. Uh, and that's, that's what he's really encouraging the church in Laodicea to, to do, is to, to actually go down on your knees and seek out in repentance the reproof and the discipline of the Lord. Um, for them, that's really what it's going to take to bring them back to a place where they become useful in the hand of the Lord. Verse number 20, he kind of closes out the whole of this section with words that I think are fairly familiar to us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and, him and he with me. Um, sometimes this verse gets lifted out of context and used incorrectly. All right. In its context, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want to have fellowship with you. Okay. Here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get your attention, right? Um, by the way, discipline and reproof are one of the ways he does that. Isn't that true? Okay. Um, I, I think I've shared a little bit with at least some of you this story, but it's, 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 it's very deep in me. Uh, one, one, of, one of the men who was part of our leadership uh, in Lincoln, in our church there, his son um, went off to school in Arizona. And um, during the course, course of time, his son became pretty, pretty highly addicted to alcohol. And so uh, as a dad, he would get reports back, you know, from, from his, I guess you really can't get reports back from the school anymore, from your kids, right? Um, but he would get reports back that things aren't going very well, right? So he, he asked me one day, he says, Luke, would you begin to pray for my son? I said, yes, I will. And uh, I sat down with him, and I had a very serious conversation. I said, how do you want me to pray for your, your, your boy? And he asked me this question. He says, is, is there ever a time where it's right to actually pray that something hard happens to your child? He didn't want to do that, but he did want to do that. Because as a dad, what he realized is my son is getting so lost in this stuff that unless something pretty significant happens, he's going to be in trouble for his whole life. So he just asked that question, is it all right to pray that something difficult happens to your son? And I said, absolutely. It's, it's okay to pray for discipline and to pray, pray for reproof. So we began doing that, he and I, and, and, uh, and sometimes the phone calls would come early in the morning hours, and it was dad, and he was saying, okay, my son just called, he's drunk, he's, can you help me pray? We would pray. All the way up to the day that his son had a motorcycle accident and broke his neck and became bound to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And, and that dad went through such agony 
Luke, why did I pray for something bad to happen? I said, no, 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 correction. You didn't pray for this to happen. You didn't pray for something bad to happen. You prayed for discipline to happen. Now, here's the end of the story. During the time that I got to know his son, they brought him back to Lincoln. Madonna Rehab is, is one of the best in the region. And so they brought him back to Lincoln and did his rehab work there. During that time frame that I got to know his son, uh, it was probably several, well, it was a number of months into to just going and spending time with him and reading the Bible that his son said to me, can you, can you stop for a minute and read that part of the Bible again? And I, I was reading to him a story out of the Bible that had to do with baptism. And he looked at me and said, I want to be baptized. And um, so his son became, literally became a follower of Jesus Christ. He, he, for years, he, he told me, he says, I, I've, gone, I've been to church. I've never followed Jesus Christ. And, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ in a wheelchair in Madonna. And the day that he died, his dad was able to say to me, um, I'm not thankful that that motorcycle accident had happened. I'm not thankful that he had to live his life in a wheelchair. It's a very hard life. Um, but I'm thankful for this, that he'll spend eternity on new earth because the Lord in love disciplined him. And so I, I think in a way, when I look at this, I stand at the door and I knock. What is Jesus saying? I want to come in. I want to have fellowship with you. I want you to be with me forever. I want you to be at the great feast, the feast that will happen at the beginning of, 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 of all time. And for that to happen, I'm knocking. Do you hear my voice? Okay. Now here's how that verse gets misused and pulled out of context. Um, it gets misused when we, when we take the, the metaphor too far, and when we try to make it say, Jesus is trying to, to knock on your door and, and enter in, in other words, bring you to faith, and you, you have the power to open that door in and of yourself, okay? No, you don't. You're costs. You're poor. You don't have that strength, that power. The only way you open that door is what? You put the solve on. You know what the solve is? The ointment is? When you anoint someone with oil right? What does it symbolize? The Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit of God is that force within you that even allows you to open up that door so that Jesus Christ can come in, right? And so I've seen this verse pulled out of context and misused. What it's really intending to say is Jesus wants to have everlasting, ongoing uh, intimacy with you on the new earth, what he's doing is he's knocking so often hard on our door, and the Spirit is that knock. The Spirit is going, bam, bam, bam. And, and what we do have the power to do, what we do have the strength to do, we have the strength to resist that. We can say, go away. Stop knocking. We can put the sign on the door, you know. Um, occupants asleep, right? Um, but we don't have the power to open it. It's the spirit that knocks. It's the spirit that finally causes that moment where we open up that door. And when that door opens up, we're able to see how uncovered we are and how much we need Jesus Christ. And so that's really what he's saying here is, I'm standing at your door and I'm knocking. 
I like to ask, I like to ask myself this question. So I'll, I'll just give it to you. Uh, am I listening? You know, are there, are there places in my life where really, honestly, the spirit is just knocking hard? Because I think all of us have that, that built in capacity to just kind of say, not now or go away or, or come back later. And, um, and so am I listening to that spirit that is knocking hard at the door? Because what Jesus wants is that fellowship. It closes out the way he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne. Okay, so it's kind of a throne picture, which is, which is going to take us actually into chapter four next. You're going to sit with me on my throne as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The kind of intimacy that we're going to have together is one where we have a together rule over new earth. Okay, so I think of Adam and Eve. When they were put on planet Earth, they were given what? Rule, dominion over the Earth. Okay? And so in new Earth, what you will have with, with Jesus, the one who has conquered on our behalf, is that same dominion over the new Earth. It's a restoration of Eden. Okay? Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And that last verse kind of takes the, the whole of those seven churches and wraps it up and says every single one of them, you know, the, Theatera, Ephesus, um, Pergamum, all of them, as we've listened to them, what, what our hope is is that we've been able to see a little bit of us, me personally, in every one of them, and a little bit of us in every one of them, including this last one, Laodicea, and that closes it off. So, Kind of put it in context. Here's how Revelation starts off with these seven letters that are going out to, to these regions that are, are made up of house churches who have, who have the critical job of bringing people to know Jesus Christ. And, and in each case, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, here's good things that these churches are doing. Do these. And here are things that these churches are doing that are not good and, and learn from them. Now, Chapter 4. I told you last week we get to chapter 4. Um, remember what's, kind of remember what, what's going on structure-wise with this? So Revelation is going to be a, a series of seven sevens, right? Where, where literally you kind of take a, you have the subject right here is Jesus Christ and his return, and you're going to walk around that subject uh, once, twice, three times, seven different times, okay? So this first cycle, we've kind of walked around and looked at the different churches and what's going on. We're getting ready to go into the next sevenfold cycle, all right? The next sevenfold cycle we're, we're going to be uh, introduced to is the metaphor of scrolls that are going to be opened up, all right? Scrolls that are going to be opened up. There'll be seven scrolls. Each time a scroll gets opened up, some not-so-good things happen, okay? Um, when we're done with that cycle, we'll actually, the world will end, okay? So the world ends a number of times throughout the book of Revelation. You're like, well, how many times does the world actually end? Once, okay? But you're just looking at it in seven different ways. So the next, this next cycle, we're going to be looking at how the world will come to an end, all the different things that will happen as we get close to the, to the end, uh, through the metaphor of scrolls. 
Now that said, let me just put a little asterisk or a uh, pointer right here. Um, not uncommonly, when you when you end one cycle, you'll stop for a minute, and there'll be what a lot of a lot of uh, theologians call an interlude. Okay, an interlude is kind of like a breather. Um, here, here's how I describe it. You're going to need to do this often as you read the book of Revelation. Give me a break, God. Okay. Put yourself in, in John's place. How would you like to receive this word of God? And every time you, every one of these cycles, as you hear what's going on, you know, John, John's whole life has been about the church. John's whole life has been about trying to lead people to lead people to Jesus Christ. When he finishes these seven letters or hearing from Jesus about these seven letters, this, this movement needs to happen. Whew, wow. Okay, that was a lot. Okay. So those interludes kind of give you this moment of, of breath where you're going to get to see the whole of what God is trying to do rather than the part. So when chapter 4 opens up, that's how it opens, is we're going to actually open up with an interlude that allows John just a moment to, to step up and to see kind of what God is doing from a whole different perspective. And then the scrolls will begin to be opened. So start with the interlude. Opens very simply. After this, okay, so I've finished these seven letters. After this, I looked, and this is kind of interesting language, behold, a door standing open in heaven. Okay, So remember how the vision started off. He was worshiping, and he hears the voice of Jesus call. And remember, it's a trumpet voice. And he turns to see Jesus, and behold, here is one who is like the Son of Man, and now these letters begin. Okay, So af after this, now these seven letters, open. now a little bit something different happens. Now a door opens in heaven. Okay, A door standing open in heaven. So it's almost like John has been in this vision here, in this, this domain, this world, and all of a sudden, pop, here comes this door open, and a voice is going to call him to take a different seat. I want you to come up here into heaven, and I want you to look down at the whole of what I'm trying to do. Who invites him through the door? Jesus. This is in the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That's Jesus. Remember, that's, the ver that's how this whole revelation starts off. Jesus says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Come up here. Doors open up, come up here, and I'm going to show you what must, what must take place after this. I'm going to show you the whole, not just the part, but the whole. Interesting words. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. Now there are, in, in the Revelation, there's four different times that we get to kind of see this holistic picture of Jesus. Four different times. This is the second time that we get to see it. The first time is when we open up. This is the second time where we're going to get to see Jesus enthroned, uh, seated in heaven. Okay, I think these words are, are kind of interesting. He says, 
I was in the spirit, in pneumati. And in this case, the cross-reference that I think is interesting is in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Kind of gives you a little bit better feel for what it means for this door to open up in heaven. So flip over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a minute. Let me show this to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Are there other times in the Bible where you see somebody called up to see the whole of what God is doing? Well, in 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul actually describes what happens to him in kind of a graphic way. I I find it helpful for understanding what's going on as chapter 4 begins. Let's go to chapter 12, beginning verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. Um, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Two different things, right? Visions and revelations. Revelations, you know, again, are God's going to speak something uh, to somebody, revealing to them either something that's currently happening or something that is going to happen in the future. A vision, I I see it very plainly. I can either see it like it's a movie being played out before me, right? Or I can feel like I am actually part of that movie. That's what happens here. Look at, look at how he describes it. Verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ. Now, he's talking about himself, but he doesn't want to boast. So he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Okay. So two things there. He's caught up into the third heaven. Um, that kind of confuses people, right? But if, if you think about it, you have the way the Greeks would describe this, the Uranos would be the earth atmosphere. You could describe that as the first heaven. So if, I, if, if, if the psalmist says, I, I look up into the heavens and I consider the stars, he's talking about that first heaven, the atmosphere of the earth. Beyond that, the second heaven. Many times the psalmist looks beyond just the, the stars and considers how vast God's creation is. So we, we, what would we say today? The universe, right, would be the second heaven. They didn't have, they didn't have the, the, the Hubble telescopes back then, but the, even the psalmist knows that this thing that I look up at and I see, I see these stars, it goes past my ability to even see the expanse of it, it is so great. And that greatness would be what the Greeks would call the second heaven. The third heaven would be what's, what's being referred to as the residence of God. Okay? Now, what all of us know is, is there, like a, uh, is, is there a, a place where God resides spatially? Well, God is spirit, right? He is in all. And he is above all. So a lot of times our description of heaven uh, is what? A description of being in the presence of God. Is it a place? Well, yes, in the sense that we're literally in the presence of God. No, in the sense that we really can't just describe it spatially. Right? Uh, So when we talk about the third heaven, that's really what Paul is talking about, is I'm caught up into the presence of God. I'm able to see God himself. Um, the second thing that he says here is whether I was in the body or not, I don't know. Now, question, did he feel like he was in the body? Absolutely, yes. He felt like he was in the body. 
he's feeling like, you know what, I'm, I'm here. But am I here? I, I don't know. I can't actually be here. Can I be here? I, I don't know. God knows. I don't know. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll get little snapshots of what I think Paul is talking about here through writers or individuals who have experienced what we call in popular literature near-death experiences, right? Some quite vivid. Um, one guy writes a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. I have a guy by the name of Piper. Any of you ever read that book before? Okay. When I read a book like that, here's what I don't do. I don't open it up and go, this is exactly what heaven is like. I don't, right? What I do say is this person um, seems to have been given the opportunity by God to experience, feel like they were literally in heaven. And in fact, their soul may have been in heaven. They, they experienced in a way that there was, there's a space to it. There's a physicalness to it, right? Now, what makes some of these near-death experience books interesting to me, like in Piper's case, 90 Minutes in Heaven, is the fact that, the, I mean, there's, there's, there's incontrovertible evidence that the guy was dead, right? Um, you, you can't say, well, you were close to death. No, you were dead, um, for 90 minutes and comes back to life and does not have brain damage and irreversible symptoms, but is able to tell his story. And it's quite a story, by the way, uh, if you've never read it. it uh, second one that's become popular, um, the little boy who died. Heaven is for real. Turned that thing into a movie. The movie was horrible. I mean, it did not track the book as well as it, as it should have and lift Jesus up, I think, to the degree that it, it could have. Um, but the book is really fascinating. Again, you have this little boy who dies, right? And his folks listen to him telling stories about people that he shouldn't know about and seeing things that, how, how do you know that? And he draws, you know, here's a picture of Jesus and there's other kids who've drawn similar. It's just, it's a fascinating read. What are these near-death experiences? Well, again, I don't think that we stake our belief in Jesus Christ upon those things. We don't. Nor do we say, this is my theology of heaven based upon them. You should not. But what it does tell you is that there are times where God gives a person a look at what's happening in a heavenly dimension that you, you couldn't have any other way than through a vision, right? And so that's what Paul is describing here is, I feel like I'm caught up into this third heaven. I don't know if what I'm hearing or seeing, if I'm actually in the body or I'm not in the body. God knows that. I'm not going to get caught up with that. In this case, notice what Paul says. It's interesting. He says, he heard things, verse 4, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words, Paul comes back from his, his experience in the third heaven, in heaven, with God, and says, there's things that I cannot even speak that occurred to me while I was in that, that place, okay? So, if you go back over to the Revelation, when it says that once I was in the Spirit, what's happening is, is John is being invited by Jesus Christ to come into that dimension and to experience it in a way that, he probably 
feels like he's present. I'm there. I'm looking at this one who is seated on the throne. He's looking at Jesus Christ. All right, we'll pick up with the picture that he sees because it's one of the most cool pictures of Jesus Christ in the Bible uh, when we come, come together next week. Let's pray.